Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Episode 10 features Allison Fox, CEO of American Prairie Reserve, an ambitious nonprofit with an ultimate goal of creating a 3.5 million acre reserve in northeastern Montana, a true American Serengeti. So far, American Prairie has acquired over 100,000 privately owned acres and leases another 300,000 acres of federal and state lands. We discussed the big ideas, including their guiding principles, the significance of this ecosystem, the challenges and oppositions that Allison and her team face, and even some of the ways people can experience this incredible part of the world. Visit AmericanPrairie.org to learn more and enjoy this conversation. All right, I'm joined by Allison Fox, CEO of American Prairie Reserve. Allison, thanks for joining. Thank you, Dylan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this is great. I'm so happy to have you. I've been familiar with APR for a few years now and recently just kind of been digging in a bit more into what you guys are all about. Before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit more about you and how you got to this position and what you do at APR? Sure. So um, I am the CEO of American Prairie. I have been with the organization for most of my professional career now, I'm going on 14 years. I've been the CEO for just over three years. And I ended up in this organization because I love the West. I love public lands. I love American history. And all those three, those three things really <laughs> converge um, with, with this organization. So um, I am from New England, originally from Northern Vermont. I grew up in a small town of about 1,200 people uh, right on the Connecticut River, um, uh, right on the New Hampshire border. And I found, I really found Montana um, as an adult uh, when I worked in Glacier National Park as a, a college student. So I worked in Glacier National Park for the summer between my junior and senior years of college and completely fell in love with um, the, the big open landscapes and all the public lands here. Um, met my uh, the man who's now my husband, um, and uh, first moved to Montana about 20 years ago. So um, I joined American Prairie after working here in Montana for a software company for a few years, going to graduate school, and then returning uh, returning to Montana and found this organization. So you've been there since pretty close to the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah, so American Prairie was founded in June of 2001. So next month we celebrate our 20th anniversary wow. um, of the organization founding. Well, can you tell me about the vision for it, how it came about, and kind of why this temperate grassland and this location in particular was kind of targeted as a perfect spot for this kind of work? Those are all good questions. Yeah, overarching, <laughs> what is APR? <laughs> so American Prairie is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Montana, uh, working on one thing in Montana and one thing only, but a very large thing. And that is to 
um, assemble a thriving grassland ecosystem that benefits the planet, both um, its uh, wildlife inhabitants and its people, um, and to pull over a, a multi-decade period, pull together um, a swath of land in north central Montana that's made up of both private lands that American Prairie owns and public land and uh, adjacent public lands in order to um, in, in order to pull together a complete prairie ecosystem and really to fulfill a promise that and a, a vision that many have had over really the past two millennia to I mean excuse me two centuries to have a um, a fully functioning eco ecosystem, a kind of a return to an American Serengeti um, on the grasslands. Yeah, and just to put it in context, three and a half million acres, I think I read that that's about the size of Connecticut, right? It is, and it is the size <laughs> of uh, Glacier National Parks and Yellowstone National Parks combined. Wow. And you're, you're butted up against Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge, and the Missouri Breaks National Monument. Part of what I'm a bit confused about is that APR owns about half a million acres now, but is using another three million acres of public land as part of this? Uh, not is, exactly. Is let me let me step back and I'll describe um, the model. And one of the questions you asked was why why are we working where we're working? Um, and maybe starting at you know let's start with with why we're doing this. Um, <laughs> Temperate grasslands are the most threatened and least protected um, biome, uh, land biome, terrestrial biome across the world. So less than 5% of temperate grasslands are any form of permanent protection. So when you look globally um, at temperate grasslands, there are only four places left in the world where you could reassemble a fully functioning ecosystem with all the natural processes that once occurred there occurring again and all the wildlife um, back and all the, the relationships between those wildlife species intact. So that's that's the vision for American Prairies to, to um, have that, um, that sort of full assemblage of, of wildlife and natural systems and processes in this, in this one area. This particular area was chosen for a number of reasons. One, it has uh, very rich wildlife history. If you um, read the, the journals of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, what you find is along this corridor of the Missouri River is where they saw the sort of the greatest concentration of wildlife. Um, and this was in when they were passing through in April and May of 1805. They, uh, Meriwether Lewis described immense herds of buffalo, deer, uh, antelope and elk feeding in one common and boundless pasture. Um, they were just, they saw grizzly bears, they saw wolves, they were uh, the first bighorn sheep along their journey. They were just amazed at the wildlife abundance there. So um, this region has a, has a rich wildlife history. Also very well described in Dan Flores's book, American Serengeti. Yes, and let's talk about let's talk about Dan, um, our good friend Dan, um, at some point during this this show as well. Um, the second reason is that there are large concentrations of public land in the area where we're working. So when we talk about uh, five thousand square miles, uh, three point two million acre vision, and that's the size conservation biologists recommend for a fully functioning ecosystem. The anchor of that is the one point one million acre. Um, Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge. So that's the anchor. And then what we are doing is we are um, using a willing buyer, willing seller model. We are buying uh, ranch lands um, on either side of the Charlie Russell National Wildlife Refuge and um, 
near and within the Upper Missouri Breaks National Monument, which is a national monument designated um, in the early uh, um, in the early 2000s. So, um, in addition to those two sort of anchors of the project, there are large concentrations of Bureau of Land Management land and state lands. And when we acquire a property, it is um, it it's made up of, of deeded acres that are tied to grazing leases on um, nearby BLM and, and state lands. So when you're talking about a 3 million acre vision, we will have to buy some hundreds of thousands of acres in order to fulfill that vision because a lot of public land already exists in this region. Yeah. So those are the two sort of main drivers of why this particular area is chosen and a bit about why why, why temperate grasslands, which actually brings us to, to Dan Flores's book um, perfectly, I think, because <laughs> what he, he sets out in American Serengeti is um, an incredible description of what the Great Plains in the interior of our country used to look like with some 30 million bison, 15 million pronghorn, 100,000 grizzly bears, um, and how, you know, really chronicles the, the um, ha what happened to those species over really just a, a few decades, um, the, the um, decimation of those species. And he also chronicles, you know, why when we started building national parks and protected areas in, in 1872 with Yellowstone National Park. We, we went to the mountains and the canyons. Um, and by the time people were sort of recognizing the value of grasslands for, um, for their, their, their natural values rather than um, their uh, agricultural values um, and their wildlife values, they, they, um, we were kind of in the, the, the 30s and 40s and we weren't in big park building mode anymore. And so there are smaller um, grassland parks across the um, across the, the, the Great Plains and the Northern Great Plains, but but nothing at, at ecosystem scale. Yeah, that really is the difference, and and especially in this ecosystem comprising of, like you said, charismatic large mammals that need a lot of space, um, all sorts of different species: sage grouse, prairie dogs, pronghorn this is not something that can be done at a small scale, right? No, no, it can't. And, you know, as you started to touch on, you know, we're talking hundreds of species of grassland birds, more than a hundred species of mammals, 1600 species of plants. Um, and these are, uh, this is an extreme landscape and one that has been shaped by fire. It's been shaped by drought. It's been shaped by extreme weather patterns and it's been shaped by, big migratory animals like, like bison. And those, all of those influences <laughs> require that you need, you, you need an ecosystem scale to survive, um, you know, uh, catastrophic events like disease outbreak or, or drought or, or fire. So, so once you acquired the land, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the process for habitat monitoring, habitat restoration, some of the things that you do to restore these historically agricultural use properties to fit the values of the preserve? Yeah, um, well, so first, um, all of that work is guided by science. <laughs> it is guided by a grassland restoration scale, a 10 point grassland restoration scale um, that looks at a lot of the things that we just talked about, the, the presence of natural water courses, the um, heterogeneity of the grasslands. Is it all, you know, is it the, 
um, the, the way that species, particularly grassland bird species evolved on the, on the grasslands. Some species need very short grasses, some need very tall grasses. That heterogeneity um, created um, you know, historically by bison grazing is really important to maintaining various species of, of, of grassland birds. Um, so you know, what, what is the sort of the, the, the health and the heterogeneity of the, of the grasslands? Um, what uh, fencing is another big thing. How do we defragment the, the landscape by um, installing, removing unnecessary fencing, um, installing wildlife friendly fencing, um, you know, removing unneeded structures. So how do you kind of return it to more return it to its natural state? Um, those are all those are all examples. And you know, this is where um, you know one of the things I really I'd like to hit on this afternoon is is collaboration. And this is where collaboration is incredibly important because we are um, we are not the only group that, that cares about this this ecosystem in this region, and we mm. are one of many um, nonprofit organizations, um, tribal entities. Uh, government entities all working um, for you know for the betterment of, of species in the habitat um, and particularly our, our main uh, science partner is the Smithsonian's Conservation Biology Institute and we have a multi-year partnership with them that that we hope will become multi-decadal that where they're doing all the the baseline monitoring and science in order to advise and guide our our management decisions. Beautiful. I know you're also partnered with, as you touched on, Fort Beltnap and Fort Peck. Yep. So yep. One? So we work. Um, we work primarily with the the um, Fort Belknap Indian community. There are two tribes there: the uh, Ani and the Nakoda. Um, okay. They are are we're not cross the fence neighbors, but we are uh, we're na- we're neighbors uh, by uh, by Montana standards, and uh, we work on. Um, we work on economic development projects together, and we work on species um, species re- reintroduction and, and habitat projects together. So we have a very close relationship with those tribes, and and one really um, built on um, on a now almost a, a two decade long history of getting to know one another, um, getting to know one another's goals, finding finding the mutual benefit in those goals. Um, learning about the, you know, the, the, the cultural and spiritual significance to those um, tribes of their, um, of, the, of their four-legged relatives and their four-legged and winged relatives. Um, and so we, we've collaborated on bison restoration. We have supported um, really with our, our partner, Smithsonian, as well as Defenders of Wildlife and World Wildlife Fund. Um, we've supported the tribes in leading a swift fox reintroduction effort that, um, mm. that was started um, about nine months ago and will, will be carried out over a number of years. Um, in terms of bison, in terms of working with other tribes, across the Great Plains that we've primarily worked with tribes on uh, bison restoration and um, the exchange of animals, the exchange of genetics. We've donated about 400 animals to uh, to tribes across the Great Plains states, 400 bison from our herd. Wow. How big is the herd right now, approximately? It's about 800 animals. Okay. We started in 2005 with uh, 16 animals from Wind Cave National Park and have grown the herd through uh, naturally, of course, and then also through imports from um, Elk Island National Park up in uh, Alberta, Canada. Okay, great. Yeah, so I know one of the one of the major issues that you face 
is concern about disease transmission between bison and uh, the surrounding cattle, of which there's probably 100,000, 500,000 cattle in that area. Closer, uh, yeah, fi- closer to 500,000, yep. Wow, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of concern from surrounding ranchers that specifically brucellosis may be transmitted. Uh, they're concerned with the land acquisition process and with sort of, I think, more so maybe with the threat to the ranching lifestyle, if that's a fair judgment. What is APR's stance on some of those things that people that your neighbors may be a little bit concerned about and your role within that that eco uh, with that economy that you, where you're surrounded by ranching yeah um i think i'll start with a global statement that we we believe there is room for both a three million acre wildlife reserve and an economy dominated by um the livestock industry in the state of Montana, um, we believe that we believe that wholeheartedly. Um, about, you know, more than sixty um, percent of this state is mm. dedicated to agriculture. Um, Sixty-three million acres of the ninety-plus million acres in the state are, um, are are in agriculture, and we're talking about three million acres. Um, so I think that there, it's not a zero-sum game. There is a way to, there is a way to together design a future where this wildlife reserve with the um, social and economic benefits it will bring to the region can um, can exist alongside this agricultural economy and can can diversify the, the local economy can and can diversify um, you know just the, the, the ty- types of job opportunities that are available so that, that I think that's starting that's starting at a, at a high level um, in terms of bison, important distinction: our bison are livestock. They are our um, livestock property, and we have to and do follow all of the state of Montana's disease testing protocols. We have never had we source our bison from brucellosis-free herds. We have never had um, an animal with brucellosis, um, and there is, you know, there there isn't also there's no evidence of bison transmission of brucellosis to, to cattle. So um, we understand those disease concerns and, 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 um, and we understand our obligation to, to be a good neighbor and we want to be a good neighbor. And I think one example of that was this, um, the settlement that we came to with, with one of the counties in which we have bison um, around a bison ordinance that they had put in place with um, the county being concerned about um, our disease, um, about disease. And we came to an agreement um, over a, a five-year period, collaboratively coming to the table to, to, to settle um, this, this variance that we asked for around our disease management protocols. That includes um, more disease testing on our part, but it, it importantly includes more communication about that disease testing and really an open door to say to um, the, the livestock interest and county officials who were um, concerned about this, come see how we handle our bison, come see how, um, come see the vets uh, take these samples, come see yeah. that our fences, come see our management, because we, we truly believe we have um, one of the best bison management operations in, in the country, and we're really proud of it. And sometimes um, that, those open lines of communication um, can, can, can go a long way in alleviating concerns and fears. And 
I think to your to your larger question, um, you know, we 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 may never agree on um, kind of the highest and best use of this land, but we ask that others respect their private property rights um, and. We also, um, you know, we also are going to be a good neighbor, and our neighbors are good neighbors, and we can, um, we we can, you know, we can coexist. Um, and I think as an organization, we can also, we can show up more, and we can listen, and we can be more present. You know, we are a forty-member staff now, and we have staff um, spread out across the state, many of whom live in our properties. Increasingly, um, we have staff in Lewistown, which is one of our primary gateway communities, and. Um, the more we're meeting at kitchen tables, um, the, I think the better off we'll be in the long run. Yeah, aside from the, the habitat restoration and preservation goals and the species goals, I think that one of the great things that's coming out of this project long term will be a better understanding and a, a, maybe a more balanced interface between wildland preserve ecosystems and agriculture because you're doing it you're doing it at scale you're running into all of the problems associated and you're finding solutions so uh, I think that's really encouraging and then the other point you made was that the bison are treated as livestock legally is that something that you'd like to see changed in the future for this to be you know a wild roaming herd like we have in Yellowstone um uh, yes, we would like to. We would like to see um, bison as wildlife at some point, but we do not control that. Um, we have been made clear um, all along that if, if the, the state or the, the federal government wanted to establish bison um, uh, as as a wild herd somewhere in the state of Montana, with you know with good um, community input, with good um, containment practices in place, that we would be we'd be willing to. We would be willing to be part of that, um, but in the meantime, we're, we're we're focused on growing our livestock herd of bison. We're focused on getting access to our to grazing leases so that um, our bison could be on bigger and bigger pastures and on more properties and growing uh, growing that herd over time. Yeah. Can I circle back to to something you said yeah, about? Um, uh, just this this theme of of agriculture and a nature reserve um, coexisting. I think um, you know one mix, misconception is that we that we don't work with our cattle ranching neighbors more directly, and and um, and that's not true. You know we have 800 bison right now on three properties. We are leasing our lands to cattle ranchers who have 14,000 head of cattle on our properties. And oh, so we're wow. working with more than a dozen producers who are leasing grass from us to, um, to, to you know, run, uh, augment their, their operations or as a central part of their operations. And so um, this, um, we're also have a program called Wild Sky where we work with landowners who um, in exchange for both financial and technical assistance are willing to modify their operations to be more wildlife friendly. So that includes not no tilling of, of a native prairie that might include the installation of wildlife friendly fencing. It includes a program called cameras for conservation where uh, ranchers are and landowners are re rewarded for having, for having certain species, the presence of certain species on their um, uh, particularly carnivores on their lands. So there are a lot of ways that we can work together toward mutual benefit. And um, those are all centered on the fact that 
everyone in these communities values and appreciates the land and wildlife. And that's a really easy place to, to come to some common ground. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I didn't realize how extensive the leasing program was that you had 14,000 cattle. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that Wild Sky program. So that's, that's great. I think sort of jumping back a little bit to the conservation herd versus wild bison, I know that as a nonprofit entity, you, you also don't have the right to reintroduce predators. Is it safe to assume that that's an ultimate goal of the reserve as well for this to be a fully functioning ecosystem with predator pressure with all the native species that were once there? That, yeah, that is correct. We would like to see the full, the full suite of species that were once there back again, but that will be um, the, the, the presence of those species. It will be determined by, by the state of Montana and, and, and the will of the people. That's another can of worms grizzlies and wolves i mean it, it would be incredible but uh do you expect to see that at any point in our lifetimes i mean i think so you we there was a, a a grizzly bear in the in the big snowy mountains just last week um the grizzly bears are moving naturally off of the um off of the rocky mountain front onto the prairies denning on the prairies and you see um you see a lot of education um by uh by the Fish and Wildlife uh, Department and by the, um, you know, and, and by NGO groups and, and ranching collaborations about, you know, how, how to, to, to live in the presence of, of, of grizzly bears, particularly. Hmm. Uh, wolves, are, wolves are a bit trickier um, and, you know, they are dispersing uh, as, you, as you likely know from, from Yellowstone, but, uh, but grizzlies are getting much closer to our area faster. That's exciting. Yeah, um, yeah. So, with this amount of acreage that you do own, you guys are paying property taxes on all of that. Uh, that that income is that coming from private donors, from public-facing programs? Can you tell me a little bit more about that, and how do you afford the tax bills? Tax bills are just one component of what we raise <laughs> money for every year. Um, so we are, um, you know, as I mentioned, a forty-member staff. We're governed by a national board of directors, and we have supporters in all 50 states and 12 countries. So we have, um, you know, truly supporters um, across uh, across the nation, and we have raised um, north of 160 million dollars thus far. And we are um, we are um, pretty much entirely dependent on philanthropic support. Um, okay. Um, uh, from from major donors to, to annual fund donors, we're we're raising those those funds every single year to to pay our property taxes. And yes, we as a nonprofit, we are exempt on paying property taxes on a very minimal amount of acreage. It's like 160 acres, and <laughs> and we own um 100, you know, we own over 100,000 acres. So yes, yeah. property taxes are are one light item in our our annual budget for sure. Okay, as 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 our personal property taxes on. Um, on our bison as well. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have such wide-ranging support, and I'm not surprised at all. Uh, in terms of the public programs, I'm sure it's been a little bit different this year, but how, in, in what ways can the public interact with American Prairie Reserve? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, you know, we have 
since the beginning of this project, talked about American Prairie as a three-legged stool. It's about the land, the habitat, the wildlife, and the people. So land, wildlife, and people. And um, ensuring that there is public benefit is incredibly important to us. Um, that means benefit to the, in, the, to, in the communities that are surrounding us, but also to the visitors who come out and experience this landscape. And so there are a number of things you can do on the prairie and a number of ways to experience it. We are currently operating uh, two public campgrounds. We have three huts that are um, available for about $130 a night. They sleep nine people um, and they're like, um, like nicer forest service cabins, I think. <laughs> um, and those are all in our PN unit. And eventually that, that hut system will, will span the extent of the, of the reserve. Um, we have, um, we're open, we have people out floating, uh, floating the rivers, um, hiking, mountain biking, hunting, bird watching, and, and frankly, just exploring the landscape. I and mean, one of my favorite things to do is just do what we, uh, what we call land snorkeling, which is well, you can imagine what that is, right? <laughs> it's like snorkeling. Uh, you never go out snorkeling with a destination. You go out snorkeling to see, to see what you can see. And the prairie, that big wide open landscape is one of the best places for for land snorkeling, you you know you you just never know what wildlife you're gonna see the the prick, flowering prickly pear um, the, the the rocks that you might pick up it's it's just it's a fascinating complex landscape when you slow down to explore it on on foot at that pace rather than whizzing by uh, in a car or overhead in an airplane um, so. We are operating those visitor facilities. We are enrolling our um, 60,000 plus acres in the state's public hunting program to make those, um, those uh, acres available for, for public hunting. Uh, we have um, opportunities to harvest our bison um, that they're very, very popular. Um, they are part of a, they're a key management tool for us um, to control herd size and to also um, learn about, um, you know, learn about how we can manage public um, harvesting of bison when the herd is much bigger than it currently is, right, at, at 800 animals. So those are very popular opportunities. Is and that a drawn uh, opportunity, a tag? It's a drawing, yeah. It's a drawing. Okay, it's, it's uh, residents 20. only? Uh, no, no, it's, um, oh, okay. it's, it's broken. There are categories for, um, for res state residents uh, seven county region resident regional residents and then um, and uh, na nationwide so uh, there are some opportunities for people not in asking Montana. for a friend asking for a friend exactly <laughs> um, and what we've seen over the last year is just um, unprecedented demand in coming out and experiencing the place you know our even in 2020 with reduced capacity in our facilities we saw a 200 percent increase in reservations I think more people are learning about us, learning about what we do, learning about opportunities to visit. So that certainly was part of it. But um, particularly for Montanans, when we weren't, you know, when we weren't getting, uh, there weren't a lot of opportunities to leave the state last year. Many people were looking for for new corners of this of this incredible state to explore, and 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 they found the prairie, and it's and that that trend continues. Um, that trend continues this year. Nice. Yeah, I was just talking with. Uh... Connor Coleman in the last episode about sort of the idea of a backpack tax about the impact of recreation on the landscape and the fact that hunters and anglers pay toward their use of the land. Mm -hmm. 
whereas other recreational users don't necessarily. And as someone who's, you know, you're directly seeing the, the new pressure and, uh, and the volume of people getting out onto public lands, would you support something like that that would take proceeds from outdoor and recreational sales and, and put it toward public lands? I would. Yeah. I mean, personally, I, yeah, personally, I would. I, 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 um, there are plenty of sportsmen in my family and I, um, I know what those, those tags cost is particularly out of, out of state, um, tags. And I, I, you know, that's how we're, that's how we're funding, um, our programs here in the state. And I think there are some creative opportunities to have other user groups, you know, uh, contribute to, um, to that sort of species and habitat work um, beyond what they're doing, of course, as, as, as taxpayers. You know, and, yeah. and, and certainly in, in our case, you know, what we hope is that the people who come out and camp and enjoy free access to our lands and um, stay in our huts, that they they become supporters and champions. Um, you know, certainly we'd love for them to, that people to become uh, financial supporters of the organization, but also, um, but also champions to spread the word to, um, you know, when, when, when we need, um, when we need voices supporting our project that we can, we can count on those people who've gotten to know the landscape themselves to, 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 to step up and lend their, their resources and time to the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I, I haven't been able to visit myself. Uh, I think I've driven through that area of the country, but, uh, haven't really been in, I've been in other parts of Montana. It, can you describe a little bit more, we're talking about glaciated plains, rolling steps. I mean, tell paint the picture of, of overall what this landscape should look like. Yeah. Um, it is so much more diverse than, than people realize. Um, it is, it's this, it's not flat. <laughs> As you say, it is a, you know, it, it's rolling sagebrush steps with, uh, with coolies, with timbered areas, with these steep and dramatic breaks um, around the Missouri, uh, particularly around the Missouri River. You know, the Missouri River cuts its way through, the, the Judith River is in the region, the mussel shell comes into the Missouri from, from the south. Um, and there are hills, there are island mountain ranges off in the distance. You can see the, the Judith Mountains and the um, Bears Paw. You can see the Little Rockies from, from our properties. So um, it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's vast. It's, the, it's quintessential Montana big skies. It's, it's extremely remote. Um, there is one paved road that goes through the, the region where we're working. It's um, mostly, um, mostly gravel um, and improved surfaces. And, um, and you are at exposed to the elements. So another thing we tell visitors is come prepared. You come with your four-wheel drive, you come with water, you come with, um, you know, you, you come with sleeping bags, you come with warm clothes, you, and if it rains, you don't go anywhere. You don't try to drive in gumbo. And um, there's something, uh, there's something quite incredible about that experience too, just how exposed you as a visitor, you know, feel to the elements and how um, small and insignificant you can feel as a human being in, yeah. in a landscape that is that uh, big and wild. There's not a lot of that left. And uh, it, it makes sense that this is the perfect time and place to be doing something like this. I recently, maybe six months ago, was in Big Bend in Texas and, and I felt similar. I was like, you're really out there exposed to the elements. 
it's a good feeling though. It's, it's nice to kind of get out of your comfort zone like that. Yeah. I, I would like to pick your brain on big Ben. That is on my list. Um, my family and I do quite a bit of, of traveling and camping in national parks and wilderness areas and, you know, on BLM lands across the, across the West. My husband, and I actually spent our honeymoon, um, in 23 different wilderness areas, um, across wow. 11 West, oh, excuse me. Yeah. 11 Western States, um, over a three month period, he was documenting, uh, people in wilderness and taking pictures of people in wilderness for the wilderness society. This was many, uh, you know, decade and a half ago now. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the big bend is, is kind of next, next on our family li- bucket list. Amazing. Yeah. Highly recommend. Uh, we spent time near the, near the Rio Grande, near kind of Santa Elena Canyon. And it's a different landscape than I expected. It's sort of got this uh, island, island genetics, island ecosystem in a way where hmm. you know, there's different plant species and deer species that don't really exist outside that area. So it's really a special landscape and it, it's more diverse than I realized. You know, like, like most, most places you go, you kind of see a photo of the national park and you get there and you go, oh, this is a ranging ecosystem right right definitely recommend it well we'd love to get you out to the prairie yeah thanks (laughs) Uh, i'll see you there at some point it's just a matter of time i was actually just looking at your calendar there uh, for events and definitely researching the bison harvest seeing if i can get a tag for that Uh, so what are kind of the biggest challenges that you're facing moving forward here it could be with invasive species, with uh, you know, socio political issues. What are your biggest challenges right now? Raising the money is always hard yeah. <laughs> um, because you know because it will take hundreds of millions of more do- dollars. Um, and uh, we have, as I said, many many generous donors, but conservation and environmental causes that that slice of the sort of nationwide philanthropic pie is not is not big at all. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I think, um, I was rereading part of Dan Flores's book actually recently, and he said something about, um, how a project of a scale would take, um, artful statesmanship or some, some, some phrase like that. And, um, certainly when you are talking about a project that's this big, that involves, um, this many jurisdictions and jurisdictional owners and, um, different groups and stakeholders and communities um, finding, you know, finding ways to productively work together, finding ways to, you know, to, to, to advance this project year after year is, uh, is, is a challenge. You know, it is a challenge. We've put um, a lot of energy and time and resources into, um, into the state recently and um, spending time uh, communicating our value proposition to to Montana's not just local community but the state as a whole um, opportunities to not only visit our private lands but to access our public lands you know public lands are a national value they're certainly a value Montanans hold near and dear to our uh, to our hearts and a lot of what we're doing is opening up 
um, not only previously inaccessible private lands, but um, but public lands, you know, public lands as well. Um, so uh, getting that message out there, to, um, communicating the, the, the role we're playing in communities, um, the economic benefit that we are having today and will have in the future, um, that you know that takes that you know that takes some some focus and. You know, one of the things that we are, we're doing this year, which is really exciting to be doing in our 20th year, is opening um, in, in Lewistown, Montana, which is right in the center of the state of Montana, our main gateway community. We're opening what we're calling a nat our National Discovery Center. And this is um, visitor center slash community engagement center slash headquarters for the organization. So it has, um, has 2,000 square feet of exhibit space that through huge photo murals and interactive displays tells the both the wildlife and the human history of the region. Uh, it has a theater that's uh, named for Ken Burns, the Ken Burns American Heritage Theater. It has a conference and event pavilion um, and it has a children's area um, with a, uh, a really cool prairie dog. We'll have a really cool prairie dog um, exhibit and then we'll have offices <laughs> and um, conference uh, space there for for our staff as well, and and in a, a main sort of visitor services area in the front of the building. So wow. this what we we're renovating a uh, a building, a hundred twenty year old building um, on Main Street in Lewistown, and that will open to the public in September, um, and will be really the, the 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 main place where the public interacts with us as an organization. You know what. The, the experience on the ground is and will continue to be much more like a, visiting the Forest Service or a wilderness area than a national park. You know, we, it's a, as we talked about, it's very remote, it's very self-service, it's isolated, it's, um, it's vast, and, you know, you need to know where you're going before you go and what you're going to do and, um, and, you know, how you're going to keep yourself, you know, safe. Um, and, you know, you're not going to find people out on the ground who will be able to help you with that. But we really hope that people do come to the center, not only to get the educational benefit and sort of grounding in grasslands and the importance of grasslands and American Prairie's mission before people go out on the ground, but you know, but also to to get some you know get some help in, in in planning your trip and get some advice if you haven't done so you know before you land the Lewis down. I love it. Uh, w one thing I wanted I neglected to ask you about was I, I saw in one of your YouTube videos you were talking about this. I can't remember the name of the. It was like a triangle between G Glacier, Yellowstone, and uh, American Prairie. Can you elaborate on that idea? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so the so you can think about this as um, from the perspective of a visitor. You can also think about it from the perspective of wildlife. Um, so, starting with the perspective of a visitor, um, all, most of the lot of the visitation, the people coming from uh, outside of Montana to spend tourism dollars in the state go to the western side of the state, and they go to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and specifically Yellowstone National Park, and then they go up to Glacier. And so um, the idea is that this could be the third leg of that stool, that the American Prairie Charles M. Russell uh, region would be the, 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 the grassland equivalent of the, those two experiences in Western Montana. And that, um, you know, tourism is the fastest growing industry in this state. Um, you know, I think second to Hawaii, we, um, it's sort of the biggest part of our of our economy, and 
there is a lot of opportunity in in eastern Montana amongst in, in on the grasslands to um, to uh, create a sustainable you know sort of nature based uh, nature based economy. And then when you think about it from a wildlife perspective, I mentioned before that grizzly bears are moving down off the Rocky Mountain front um, south of Glacier um, toward toward the grasslands along the river systems toward the grasslands and wolves are moving north and east out of the um, uh, out of the, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So there are some um, it, there's been some interesting wildlife corridor mapping that has been done to um, to, to, to sort of reinforce this idea of this um, of this triangle. That's really exciting. I, I, I love that. You know, you mentioned you're someone who's into a lot of uh, national parks and national forests and such. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on other parts of the country, other parts of the world where something like this might be uh, applicable and timely in the way that it is where you are? Yeah, we, we, we get asked this question a lot, you know, after American Prairie is done with this project. Are we going to go do this somewhere else? And, and the <laughs> answer is swamp. no, <laughs> is no. But, um, you know, uh, at a global level, over the past half century, we have lost 60% of wildlife populations. If you look at the percent of biomass on this planet that is uh, humans <laughs> and livestock, it is, it's, it's overwhelming. And, um, and between habitat destruction and species loss and climate change, we, uh, we as a planet are, are, are facing, um, are, are facing devastating consequences on, on species. And so what we hope, you know, uh, American Prairie is at its root, a group of very dedicated, uh, determined, committed individuals, you know, I can't, um, we didn't talk much about our, our values as an organization um, and the, the culture of this organization, but we have people working with us who came from a huge variety of backgrounds and they came to this organization because they're incredibly passionate about what we do. They believe in our values of, of teamwork and um, innovation with optimism and openness to the respect and, and the culture that we ha have created. Um, and there was no there's really no magic to this besides, you know, having a plan, <laughs> uh, having an end vision, yeah. uh, having a plan, altering that plan when you need to, assembling a good group of people, uh, building, you know, building a vast network of supporters and executing that plan year after year after year. And we hope that we can be a model for other large scale conservation projects in other geographies and other biomes. And you know, there's, there's some super exciting stuff going on in Europe and South America um, on the Kazakh steppe. I mean, uh, in South America, there, there are a lot of these, um, or a handful, any of these sort of large landscape um, projects, but, um, and, and, and stuff going on at, at smaller scale too. So uh, we do hope that um, the, the lessons, we, we hope to share the lessons that we're, that we're learning and be pretty, um, open and transparent about, um, about what we've learned along the way so that we can inspire this kind of conservation in, in other parts, not only of the country, but the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just kind of dreaming about it, looking at some of the mapping that you guys have done and some of your work, I start to think about other parts of the country, specifically the Southeast, thinking you've got 
Cherokee National Forest and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park there, the whole kind of Appalachian range, I think there are opportunities for, I think, similar interventions, especially with the dying coal mining industry and some of the, you know, the, the changes in the use of the land surrounding those ecosystems. I don't know. I hope that some other organizations pop up and take heed of what you guys are doing and uh, follow suit. Give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're always happy to share what we've learned. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been great. I know you're really busy up there, so I appreciate your time. Um, anything before we wrap up that you want to plug? Any upcoming things people should know about on the reserve? Um, well, um, just come see us in Montana. This National <laughs> Discovery Center will, will open um, in September. We will open up our, our reservations again next winter for the, the, the 2022 season. We still have some campground <laughs> reservations available available for this, this year. Um, you know, just encourage people to go to our website, you know, watch some of the, the video content available, send us an email and uh, let us know if you'd like to get involved. All right. Yeah, that sounds great. And I will see you, Dylan, in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there one of these days. Anyway, thanks, Allison. All right. Thank you. Take care. Take care.